great. Thank you so very much. Let me begin by saying I'm so sorry that I read from the wrong version of the Bible earlier today. read from my version, which I'm going to read from now, but I should have read from the ESV, so I'm sorry for that distraction. I obviously wasn't prepared like I should have been, so apologize for that. But if you would, uh, turn in whatever version you like to Acts chapter 15, and I'd like for us to continue looking at what we see in Acts 15 uh, this morning. One of the things that's helpful to ask ourselves is when we think about living our life, and maybe, you know, I thought about going to Yosemite as we recently did and driving into the park, and you see these mountains, uh, El Capitan or other uh, mountains looming large in your, your windshield. And the question is, when we're driving down the road of life, so to speak, uh, what looms largest in our windshield? Especially when we think about things like law and grace. Which looms largest? Law, what I must do, or grace in terms of what God has done for me? Which is the thing that tends to fill most of my windshield and bear its greatest weight upon me? And so what we want to do is look at uh, Acts 15, which is really very much about the issue of law and grace and what looms largest in our view as Christians. The reality is there are only two approaches to God. You either approach it on the basis of law or you approach it on the basis of grace. Whatever religion there is, it's either based on one or the other. And the reality is there's only one religion that's truly based only on grace, and that's the Christian religion or the Christian faith. In Acts chapter 15, we're about in the middle of the book, and it's a transition from um, the ministry of the gospel in Jerusalem uh, to a complete focus on the ministry of the gospel among the Gentile nations. And the question that's being raised in Acts chapter 15 is, what is the role of the law in terms of being reconciled to God as well as in just living your Christian life? And so we want to read Acts 15 in, in light of that. I've titled this message, The Meeting of Pharisees Anonymous. Obviously, Alcoholics Anonymous is about those who are trying to leave behind a certain lifestyle and establish a new lifestyle. Well, this chapter is about those who are wrestling with the issue of the law and being raised to think about their relationship with God in terms of law, and now they're having to be challenged with regard to whether or not they're really thinking rightly about God, their relationship with God, and the law of God, and whether or not uh, they are still operating as Pharisees, being very much law-oriented rather than grace-oriented. There's a quote from a book called The Whole Christ. Um, It's a really great book if you ever want to read another good book. It's by Sinclair Ferguson. And in that book, he says, it cannot be too strongly emphasized that everyone is a legalist at heart. Every one of us is a legalist at heart, which means we're law-oriented. That's what it means to be legal, uh, is to be oriented around the law. He says, the essence of legalism is a heart distortion of the graciousness of God and of the God of grace. So it all comes down to how do I view God 
And how do I view my relationship with God and what looms largest in my heart and mind? So let me read for us Acts 15 in light of um, this whole issue of what is the good news and how does the law relate to it. It says in verse 1, So men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord." And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas also called Barsabbas, and Silas leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, 
having become of one mind to select men to send you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is the word of God. Well, there's several things I'd like to highlight from this passage. It's obviously a long passage, and there's so much that we could touch on. But I want to focus on the issue of legalism in light of the controversy that's talked about in uh, this passage. The first point I want to make is legalism is man-made legislation. Obviously, legislation is making law. And obviously, what our Congress does in making laws is not wrong. But what is wrong is for men to make laws and then to say this is what God requires. When we move from the realm of lawmaking uh, for men um, in terms of the practical aspects of life, in terms of a government and things like that, when we start saying this is what God requires of us and it's something that we've come up on our own, then that's a problem. When I was 18 or 19 years old, I uh, started attending a large church in my hometown. And they had a youth day, and they gave me the opportunity to preach. So it was one of my first times to preach, maybe uh, one of the first two or three times I'd ever preached before. And so I was very young, obviously young in faith, young in the ministry, hadn't even gone to seminary or anything. And so I decided to preach from Ezekiel 22:30, which talks about um, there was no man to stand in the gap before God for the nation. And so I was concerned about what was going on in our nation at the time. And so I preached a message called Standers in the Gap for God. And it's a great youth message, you know. And so um, I'm, I'm preaching on this. And at the end, my application was to whip out this list of 10 things that everyone needed to do. 
Ten Commandments for Standards in the Gap for God. And it was a list of man-made rules that we needed to keep if we were going to save our nation. And I think about that and I think, why didn't somebody save me from myself? I mean, I submitted that um, sermon to my pastor, and I don't know if he never read it or what, but he never said anything either before or after. And I'm thinking, somebody should have pulled me aside and said, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but that is not the way to do it. And so what we have is the reality that even when we might have good intentions to go about it in a, a way that is basically legislating in the name of God does much more harm than good. It doesn't help anybody. And so we have to be careful of that. And that's what we see happening in verse 1 when it says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They're saying that in order for you to be saved, you have to follow the Bible in the way that we say you should follow the Bible. They were talking about the law of Moses, which was in the Bible. They were using the Bible to be legalistic. Now, you don't have to use the Bible to be legalistic. You can make up stuff that is totally outside the Bible. But you can even use the Bible to be legalistic. And they were pointing to the Old Testament. They were pointing to the law of Moses and saying, this is what you need to do in order to be saved. And the real the reality is, when I think about legalism, it's really like uh, if Governor Newsom were to go to San Quentin State Prison and gather all the criminals there and say, we want you to legislate for the people in California. We want you to come up with the laws. We want you criminals to come up with the standard. That's really what we're doing as sinful humans when we say, let's come up with our own list of right and wrong and say that it's what God wants. And we have to recognize that To some degree, all of us are prone. If we're all legalists, naturally, sinfully, then we're all prone to legislate for ourselves and for others in ways that God never intended for us to do so. I've mentioned before uh, that when I was in high school, I had a good friend named Jack who was in a church that was heavily influenced by uh, the ministry of Jack Hiles. If anybody's old enough to remember Jack Hiles, uh, and their ministry is, I would consider, very heavy on the legalistic side in various ways. And so you had to have your hair cut in a certain way, and you couldn't go to movies, and couldn't go to and do various things, dancing or anything like that. And it was all about what you had to do or not do to be a good Christian, so to speak. But all of us have probably experienced that to one degree or another, but it has a long history. In fact, uh, Um, Elizabeth Elliot and others have quoted from a Christian school, which was a highly respected Christian school in the second century, in which someone was asked, uh, someone asked the question, what is it I must forsake in this world to follow Christ? And the answer in the second century was um, colored clothes, for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. 
To shave is to lie against him who created us, to attempt to improve on his work. It's all the way from the second century. So legalism has a long history of saying this is what you got to do either to be saved or this is what you have to do to be a good Christian. That's totally apart from the word of God. It's man-made legislation. It's basically replacing grace with law, replacing Jesus with Moses. When it talks about preaching Moses, it's talking about preaching the law. And we have to be careful that in Romans 9, it talks about the fact that, um, well, Paul puts it this way in verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Which means they sought their relationship with God in terms of law, rather in terms of grace. What loomed large in the eyes of Israel was law, 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 not grace, grace, grace. The second thing that I want to point out, out about legalism is that when we try to live our lives legalistically, we're basically playing dress up. Um, when our kids were young, we had a box of clothes and hats and all kinds of things that our kids could put on. And they could, you know, be a cowboy or, or they could be a little house on the prairie wife or whatever. And they would dress up and play those roles. Well, the Bible says that the Pharisees were like people playing dress up in the way that they carried out their relationship with God. The reason I have Miss Piggy up there is because the Bible talks about the fact that no matter how you dress up a pig, it's still a pig. If you put a, a gold ring in a pig's nose, it's still a pig. If you dress it up with in lace and lipstick, it's still a pig. And that's the point of hypocrisy. You can put on uh, whatever you want in terms of man-made religion, man-made laws, but you haven't really changed what's really happening in your life. And that's why uh, what is being proposed here in verse 5 is from the sect of the Pharisees, because they're still uh, obviously influenced by what they've come out of. They come out of um, a perspective on their relationship with God is very law-oriented. It's about how you appear, what you do, instead of what God has done for you. And so it says in verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. They're saying if these Gentiles are going to be saved, they have to become Jews. They have to follow the law. If they're going to be Christians and if they're going to be good Christians. Well, Jesus, obviously, uh, when he was on earth, spoke to the scribes and Pharisees. And the scribes were very much about the law, um, as well as the Pharisees. In verse 28 of Matthew 23, Jesus said, So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So you can be a stickler about following rules and be lawless. Why? 
Because you're not following God's rules. You're not following God's law. You're you're following your own man-made laws. So you can be a stickler about rules and still be lawless. The Pharisees were sticklers, and we need to understand that. And so it's all based on man-made ideas about what was right and wrong and what they should or shouldn't do. And even Paul, in, in talking to the Colossians, would say, be careful of thinking, even as Christians, that, you know, um, you know, where there's two laws, um, four laws are even better. You know, if God gives me two laws, let me just add some laws to that because more laws, more holiness, right? Um, well, Paul says, no, that's not the way it works. In Colossians 2.23, he says, These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Which means, if even as a Christian I am following man-made rules, it will not make me more like Christ, no matter how faithful I am to those man-made rules. Man-made rules are not holiness. They're actually unholiness. It's actually unrighteous to follow man-made rules in terms of your relationship with God. And so it's something that we have to be careful of because legalism dresses up as holiness. You know, the more I follow the rules that I've come up with or that some other man has come up with, the holier I am. And God says, no, that's not true. The more pharisaical you are, but not more holy. And obviously, I had a good dose of Phariseeism uh, earlier in my Christian life and still have some of it today because we still battle it in our lives. And so we have to be careful of that reality. The third thing is, it's a very subtle thing. I mean, when I preached that sermon on you know, Ten Commitments of Standards in the Gap for God, I wasn't thinking legalism. I was thinking holiness. And it can be a very, very hard thing to identify sometimes, like fleas on a dog. I don't know if many of you have seen the uh, documentary Shiny Happy People. But there are a lot of people who would, and it's kind of about uh, the Duggars, the Duggar family, and Bill Gothard's ministry. A lot of people will look at the Bill Gothard ministry and say, you know, I benefited a lot from that. And now people are beginning to look at some of the things that were taught and say, well, that was very legalistic. And and yet, the reality is, um, a lot of people would say, I never really realized that that was legalism. I never really thought about it from that perspective. It can be a very, very subtle thing. And what fascinates me about Acts 15 is you've got these guys coming down to Antioch, well, in Syria, which is above Judea, and telling everybody you have to follow the law to be saved. And so Paul and Barnabas and others from the church in Antioch go to Jerusalem, and you would think that um, they'd show up and uh, announce what the problem was. And Peter and all the apostles and James and the leaders there would simply say, oh, it's obvious what the answer is. That isn't what happened. It says in verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, they talked about it for a long time. It just wasn't obvious 
that, you know, these guys are just trying to bring uh, man-made laws into the whole issue of salvation and the Christian life. It was a little more complicated than that. How many times we talked about relationships and we said, well, it's, a, it's a little complicated. Well, that is indeed the way it is when we think about the issue of faith and works. What is the relationship between faith and works in the Christian life? And it gets a little complicated. But the way the Reformers uh, talked about it was, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but not by a faith that is alone. So the basis for our relationship with God is grace through faith, but what should come out of that foundation is a house that is a house of obedience to God, obedience to his word. So if there is obedience, but it's not the basis for the foundation of our relationship with God. That's why James could say in James 2, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Jan right now is reading um, a book called Becoming Mrs. Lewis. It's about, um, um, what's her name again? Davidson? Joy Davidson? Davidman, who ended up married, marrying C.S. Lewis. And Jan likes to read to me what she's reading, which I really enjoy. And so we talk about it, and we think about it, and we say, that was a really complicated relationship. And just understanding how all that transpired and how C.S. Lewis ended up marrying her and her, her divorce from her husband and all that sort of thing, you begin to think, okay, how did all this play out? Did it play out right and everything else? Well, if you look at the Bible, you realize, and if you look at Acts 15, you realize this issue of faith and works and the relationship with, with, between the two of them was a complicated matter that really needed to be carefully worked through because you didn't want to say that the law was totally irrelevant because that would be what they call antinomianism, lawlessness, but you didn't want to say, on the other hand, that you have to obey the law in order to be saved. And so how do you cut straight? How do you make a careful distinction between law and grace so that you exalt the grace of God while at the same time affirming that there is an issue of obedience in the Christian life? And that's what they were dealing with here. But the most important thing to realize is that the foundation of the Christian life was being challenged here because legalism denies the gospel. If you look in verses 7 through 11, you see how Peter responded um, to the Pharisees who were bringing this up, who were actually a part of the church there in Jerusalem. In verse 7, it says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
We believe that we are saved to the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So Peter is saying, remember 10 years ago when God sent me to Cornelius and I preached the gospel and even before I was finished with my message, God sent the Holy Spirit and they believed and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they received the Holy Spirit just like we did on the day of Pentecost. And so they became Christians without following the law. They became Christians by just believing the gospel. And so what you're trying to do is to put a yoke on them that God hasn't even put on us if we rightly understand the gospel. And so if we ask the question, why is it such a big deal to add anything that we must do to what Christ has done for us? What, what is the issue there? Why is it such a big deal? Well, it's because... When we add what we do to what Christ has done for us is we poison the whole thing. I was reading about a, a little toddler that played in a, a splash pond in the country club recently and caught a deadly virus from it. The picture that I want us to think about is to play in the pool of legalism is to poison your Christian faith. Paul, uh, Peter is saying, um, you basically ruin the whole gospel. You deny the whole gospel because we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. I think it was R.C. Sproul maybe who said, in this case, when you add your own works, following the law or whatever, to what Christ has done, you actually have addition um, that is subtraction. Or maybe you could say subtraction by addition. You actually take away what Christ has done for you by adding to it what you do. And I would argue that that's what the Roman Catholic Church does. Now, there are, I believe there are a lot of true Christians in the Roman Catholic Church because they believe better than the official doctrine of the church. But the official doctrine of the church says you are not justified by grace alone through faith alone. That there has to be obedience in addition to that. And that's the very thing that Acts 15 is arguing against. Paul could say in Galatians 5, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. If you add circumcision or add obedience to the law to your, quote, faith in Christ, then Christ will be no, of no benefit to you. You will actually deny the gospel. And so it was no small thing what was taking place uh, in the church during these days. It was crucial to the ongoing proclamation of the gospel. But another thing that I want to highlight is... Once they settled that issue and, and the, whether you call it a council or a consultation in Jerusalem over this matter, they basically settled the issue by saying, no, we're not going to require the Gentiles to be circumcised. No, we're not going to require them to follow the law of Moses. But does that mean then they shouldn't be concerned about obedience? Are we basically telling them you can live like you want and... That wasn't the outcome either. They didn't say, no, you can live like you want. They actually 
said, interestingly enough, if you look at verses uh, 28 and 29, um, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well, farewell. Now, there's a lot to say about that. Number one, uh, the rest of the New Testament says there's more to the Christian life than just avoiding those things. So what they're talking about is in terms of Gentile and Jewish relationship, because the issue seemed to be that Jews and Gentiles aren't going to be able to fellowship together if Gentiles are still doing these things. And all of these things are to be understood in the light of them coming out of idolatry. These are the kinds of things that would have been done in idolatrous worship. And so they're basically saying in order for Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to be able to fellowship together unhindered, we're saying that the Gentile believers should basically yield in these areas and love their Jewish brethren in these areas. And the Jewish uh, brethren are to love their Gentile brothers by not trying to make them become Jews and obey the law of Moses. And so even though the Jerusalem Council uh, did not require the new Gentile believers to follow the law of Moses and the old covenant, they still said there is an issue of love. There still is an issue of obeying Christ and this is one way they applied that. One of the things that's really interesting um, is that when you think about the issue of legalism, um, sometimes it's very easy to think that the answer to legalism is lawlessness. You know, uh, I don't want to be a legalist, and so I'm just not going to worry about obeying the law. And in the book that I mentioned, The Whole Christ, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, in light of other Puritans, argues that uh, the root of both legalism and lawlessness is the same. Both of them are sin. And the root is actually the same. It's a wrong view of God. And the way he puts that is, he would say the legalist sees God as the he whose favor has to be earned hard father. It sees God as a hard father whose favor has to be earned. And so the legalist is working hard at pleasing God to get into his favor. But the lawless person sees God as the he who is not to be trusted because he does not love me, false father. He sees God as a false father who doesn't really care, doesn't really have his best interests at heart, doesn't really love him, and therefore why should I live like he tells me to live? It's a view of the father that sees him as hard, a hard father, or really a false father, really not even a father, in terms of care and love. And so the answer is the gospel, to really see the goodness of God, the love of God, the grace of God in the gospel. And that our love for God and for others flows out of believing that we are graciously loved by God. That's how we're to live our lives. And that's why 
Paul could say also in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Faith in God's love for us, his gracious love for us in Jesus that moves us to love him and love others. Well, in light of that, let me go to my last point, is that legalism undermines love. The last part of this chapter is interesting to me. Uh, Obviously, it's setting up for chapter 16, but it's connected, obviously, to all that's gone on uh, in this council. And it says that Paul and Barnabas had a falling out. They had a sharp disagreement, which means a heated clash. No small disagreement, no minor disagreement. They had a major falling out. And it was over John Mark. And John Mark had gone with them at the the very beginning of their first missionary journey. And then after they left Cyprus, the island, he went back home. He left them. And Paul said he shouldn't have done that. But Barnabas wanted to take him on their second journey to go back and check on the churches. And Paul says, no, he left us. I don't want to take him again. And people have looked at that and they've tried to read between the lines and try to figure out, okay, who is at fault here? Was Barnabas at fault? Should he have not recommended John Mark and been so stubborn about taking his cousin with them? Was Paul at fault because he um, held that against John Mark and wouldn't take him with them? Um, The reality is we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us for sure if Barnabas was in the wrong, if Paul was in the wrong, if they both were in the wrong in some way or, or what. But as I read that and thinking about what was taking place and thinking about the fact that we are all prone to naturally be legalists, even Paul, who was a Pharisee before, it is possible, I don't want to falsely accuse Paul, but I want to make this application for us. What if Paul was being a little hard on John Mark? What if he was basically saying, no preaching grace with me because of what you did? They're going to proclaim the gospel of grace, but you're not going with me because you failed. That may or may not be what's going on here, but it happens all the time. That we are to be champions of grace, and yet we're canceling people that don't live up to our standards in various ways. And we have to be careful of that. Whether Paul was doing that here or not, we need to be aware of that tendency in all of us and to be careful of our own heart attitudes because it does say in Luke 18 Jesus tells the parable of the the Pharisee and the tax collector who go to pray and in uh, moving toward telling this story it says in Luke um, 18 9 he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt when you're law oriented and you feel like you're justified before God because of how you live, it's very easy to condemn other people who aren't living up to your standard, 
to live in contempt of other people. So legalism does not make us more loving. Following man-made laws, whether we make them up or somebody else makes them up, does not make us more loving. And I think about the reality that Paul says in Romans 7, that he does the thing that he doesn't want to do. The very thing he does want to do, he doesn't do. The very thing he doesn't want to do, he does do. And so even Paul at times was inconsistent with the gospel message, just like we are. And we have to be careful of that. We have to pray, God, help me in that regard. I ran across this quote from Charles Spurgeon this week where he's talking about prayer, and I want to apply it to the issue of loving in general. But he says this. He says, I have found in my own spiritual life that the more rules I lay down for myself, okay, the rules I lay down for myself, not trying to follow God's word, but laying down rules for myself, the more sins I commit, the more I'm making up rules that I'm trying to follow, I become less loving, not more loving. And he talks about prayer. He says, The habit of morning prayer and evening prayer is one which is indispensable to a believer's life. So he says, we, we need to be devoted to prayer. But the prescribing of the length of prayer and the constrained remembrance of so many persons and subjects may gender unto bondage and strangle prayer rather than assist it. Okay, what he's saying is, if I come up with a plan that I have to pray so long, and I have to pray for all these people, and I have to pray for all these things, I have to do this at this time every day, and I have, to, I have to do this to be a good Christian, to be in God's favor, and to know that he loves me, and so that my day will go well. If I am trying to live according to those laws, I become less loving, not more loving. Man-made laws never make us more loving. Should we say, God, help me obey your word? Yes. And we should pursue that with all of our heart. But we have to be careful of just coming up with man-made hedges about God's word or uh, man-made implications of what that means that everybody ought to follow or that I have to follow that actually is more bondage. And, And Spurgeon would say it strangles prayer, which means it strangles love. It strangles us from actually growing in our Christian life. But what I'd like to do with just the last few minutes here is have us think about this because if it's true, as Sinclair Ferguson says in light of what many Puritans have talked about, that we're all naturally legalists and that legalism is something that we will fight till the day we die. The idea that I have to earn my favor in the eyes of God, that that I have to somehow follow all these man-made rules and that sort of thing. If that's truly the case, we really need to think about where we are and how we need to, to fight it. So I want to conclude with that. In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan talks about this conversation between Christian and faithful. And faithful is relating to Christian about how he um, basically got lured into what is called the town of deceit, by Adam the first. And so he's lured into the town of deceit and then he escapes, or at least he tries to escape uh, from Adam the first. And he's um, basically chased down by a man. And he says, "Soon, as soon as the man overtook me, he was but a word and a blow. 
He said something and he beat me. He said something and he beat me. He said something and he beat me. And Faithful says, I asked him, why are you doing this to me? And he said, because of your secret inclining to Adam the first. Obviously, the question is, what does he mean by that? And Faithful, I don't think, knew for sure what he meant by that. But it goes on. He starts, you know, give him a word and a beating, a word and a beating. And uh, Faithful says, I cried to him for mercy. And the man said to me, I do not know how to show mercy. And he kept beating him and beating him. And he said, he would have killed me if someone had not come along just in time. And I noticed, he said, that the man who came along had holes in his hands and in his side, and I concluded it was the Lord. And so Christian says, and I know who that man was that was beating you. That man who overtook you was Moses. He spares none, neither knows he how to show mercy to those who transgress his law. So the Savior that we need from Moses is Jesus. Moses is a picture of what the law requires. The law says, do this, and if you don't do this, you die. No mercy, according to the law. Grace is only found in Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson comments on that by saying, What Bunyan here calls Faithful's secret inclining to Adam the first is related to Paul's metaphor of our marriage to our first husband. The memory of him, which returns like a ghost to a haunted house, gives us nightmares about our previous abusive relationship. So he's basically saying our relationship to the law is like being married to a first spouse who's abusive. And yet, even though we're married to a new spouse who's not abusive, we still have recurring dreams and nightmares about that first spouse that brings condemnation. And Ferguson goes on to say, uh, in turn, all of this becomes a creeping paralysis in our relationship to the Lord and brings with it a loss of our sense of pardon. We are guilty, failures, ashamed. We must do better to get back into his graces, but we keep failing. We cry to the law to show some mercy, but their law contains no mercy. It is powerless to pardon. Moses, in this sense, can only beat us into a bondage frame of spirit. Then our only hope is to have with faithful a clear sight of the nail scars in the hands of Jesus Christ, our second husband. The gospel tells us that it was while we were still weak, still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. It is only through the free, patient, loving grace of our second husband, the second man, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, that we can be delivered from a bondage frame of spirit. This the law cannot do. The personal, spiritual, mental, emotional, temperamental, Release comes only when we grasp the fact that what the law could not do because of our weak flesh, God has done for us in Christ. The abused bride must drink in her new husband's love and fix her eyes on him. The law says do or die. The gospel says this is what Christ has done that you may live.
If we live under the law, it will beat us to death. If we receive and rest in the gospel, it will bring life and joy and peace. The question for all of us as we wrap up this morning is, why do you pursue obedience to God? Or why don't you pursue obedience to God? If you do pursue it, why do you? If you don't pursue obedience to God, why don't you? And the reality is both of those could be answered with regard to the issue of whether or not we're pursuing or thinking of God in light of grace or not. Another Puritan, actually a Scottish Puritan, asked some questions, and I want to close with these questions for us to consider ourselves. And he's basically raising the question of, think about whether or not you have a legal spirit, that you're law-oriented rather than grace-oriented in your life. He says, when a man is driven to acts of obedience by the dread of God's wrath revealed in the law and not drawn to them, By the belief in his love revealed in the gospel, he has a legal spirit. When he fears God because of his power and justice and not because of his goodness, he has a legal spirit. When he regards God more as an avenging judge than as a compassionate friend and father, he has a legal spirit. And when he contemplates God rather as terrible in majesty than as infinite in grace and mercy, He has a legal spirit. So when I think about God, am I motivated to obey because of his wrath or because of his love? When I think about God, am I trying to fear God because of the justice that might come or because of his goodness? Am I pursuing God in light of him being an avenging judge or a friend and father? Am I, in some sense, pursuing God because of his terrible, frightening majesty or because of his infinite grace and mercy? One highlights God as holy and as having a law that has to be somehow satisfied. The other one highlights God as mercy and grace. And what he says is, Depending on how we're relating to God, we might be under the power of a legal spirit or under the prevalence of a legal spirit. And what he means is we may not be Christians if we're thinking this way about God, which means we're under the power of it. We've never been delivered from that legal approach to God. But he's also saying even as Christians, we could be under not the power of the legal spirit, but the prevalence of it. Even as Christians who have been forgiven, we can have that prevalent spirit in us that we're thinking more about law than grace. And we're being motivated in our life more by law than grace. And so the question is, what do we do? Well, we believe the gospel. Faith is the answer to law. We're saved by grace through faith. And that's why it says, first of all, that we believe that we're reconciled to God, not because of anything we do, but because of what God has done for us in Christ. And that's why it says in Romans 4, verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as 
righteousness. Whenever we see ourselves prone to think that God is somehow punishing me for my sin, that God doesn't love me, that God, uh, I'm not in God's favor because I haven't lived up to everything I should, I need to be reminded that I'm reconciled to God not by what I do, but by what God has done for me in Christ. It's not what I do, it's what God has done for me. And therefore, I need to fight to believe that God loves me. He's loving me perfectly. He will love me forever because of what Christ has done, not because of what I am or am not doing. That's why it says in 1 John 4, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. My relationship to God is not based on what I do or I don't do. He loves me perfectly, fully, and forever because of what Christ did for me. And so we have to be careful of being law-oriented in terms of thinking that that is the key to my being right with God or thinking that is the key to being loved by God. I'm reconciled to God through what Jesus did alone and faith in him. I know that God loves me perfectly simply because Jesus gave his life for me, not because of anything I do. And that is meant to set me free to love God more. It's meant to set me free to love other people more because I'm loved. It says in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. If I don't get it that he loves me and loves me perfectly, then I'm not going to love him as I should. I'm not going to love others as I should. Grace is what is meant to fuel our lives, the gracious love of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us as we try to think through this a little bit this morning, to think about how prone we all are to to think in terms of what we do or don't do, either in terms of being right with you or in terms of believing that you love us and care for us and are in, and we're in your favor. I just pray, Lord, that you would continue that good work in us. For those of us who do know you, that we would rest and rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, even what we will celebrate in this Lord's Supper, that we will rejoice in what Christ has done for us that enables us to be reconciled to you and to know that you are loving us perfectly and will love us perfectly forever. And Father, for those here who have never turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus, I pray that you would deliver them from thinking that it's all about what they do or don't do, but open their eyes to see that it's about what you have done for us and giving your son for sinners, that he is truly an able and willing savior for sinners. Father, we just thank you for this time. We pray that you would um, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and greater joy and peace in believing and greater freedom in our Christian life from legalism as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.